First Timothy chapter 1, where we started this morning in verse 18, three verses, 18 through 20. Let's hear God's word again. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Everyone who once begins to follow Christ will either be a good soldier or a shipwreck. Being a good soldier of Jesus Christ, Timothy is to wage the good warfare by never letting go of the twin ways of attaining Christ's commendation for a life well lived. Those twin ways are faith and a good conscience. We saw this morning that faith is believing everything God said, so it's believing true doctrine. And a good conscience is a pain-free conscience because of good conduct, because of doing everything God has commanded. Which, of course, is what we would expect in a pastor like Timothy, and it certainly is what God expects of us all. We all want our master to commend us someday, saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share the joy of your master. But it isn't like that for everyone. You could probably think of people who have made a shipwreck of their faith. I mentioned Robert Louis Stevenson this morning. But you could think of people who started out in church, maybe in this church and in other true churches. Young people who grew up with knowledge, who received the sign and seal of baptism and the benefits of knowledge, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and who wandered away from the faith and made spiritual shipwreck. Some of them were able to keep their lives basically intact. Others wrecked their lives wholesale. But in either case, they became a spiritual calamity compared to what they could have been as a good soldier. So this evening we get to see again how important these two things are, the faith and the good conscience, because we're going to be given an inspired insight into the shipwreck. We'll see how it happens, what the church has to do, and whether there are any possibilities of recovery from it. Believers, we have to keep faith and a good conscience or we'll wreck the faith for ourselves. The good soldier keeps them both. The shipwreck throws them away. So, what shall we glean from the shipwreck? What is it that God says about that? And the shipwreck is mentioned here, starting in the middle of verse 19. By rejecting this... Some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. The ESV here says that some, by rejecting faith and good conscience and so on, and rejecting is an adequate translation, but the Greek more accurately means by throwing it away. Throwing it away is a violent act. It's something that's not done accidentally, but deliberately like the way the mariners threw Jonah over the side of the ship. Well, that might catch some people off guard. Because often when a, when a pastor slips into liberalism or other kinds of strange doctrines, that's a very quiet, 
long process. And it may not seem violent to him. And it may not seem violent to the people around him. But as far as God is concerned, he threw the spiritual goods overboard. Also, the Greek says that they made shipwreck of the faith, not their faith. Which might be important to note, because the faith Paul is talking about here is not individualized, as in, you have your version of the faith, I have my version of faith, but it's the faith. They made shipwreck of the faith, which is the whole body of doctrine delivered from God about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude, in that little book, and in Jude 3, says, I am writing, appealing to you to contend for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Certainly, if a person makes shipwreck of the faith, well, their own personal beliefs are going to be a wreck as well. And we see that in the church, and we see it in Christian circles, where people rejecting the true doctrines of the gospel are basically, they become baptized worldlings. At best, they have a form of godliness, but deny its power, and at worst are identical to the world and not even separate from it, especially in the area of accepting the culture's sexual sins. That seems to be the trend these days. So we have to think of the faith as if it were a small sailing vessel. This is just an analogy. Maybe it will help us. And we all get our turn to sail it. It isn't that everyone gets their own, constructed to suit each personality and preference, but figuratively speaking, all who hear of the true God and hear of his wondrous works get an opportunity to sail on God's ship. Maybe you could say they get an opportunity to sail it, to take it. Because God has one way of salvation, one righteous law, and one purpose. God is one. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. And so we can think of our time here on earth with God's salvation as if we're on board a little ship called the faith. Now those who don't know God at all don't have a hope of survival without this ship. They are in the lost sea of wrong beliefs. They're caught in the waves of judgment and they're going to end up dashed on the rocks unless God's ship comes by to rescue them. That's salvation, isn't it? It's being pulled out of the drink, rescued from the danger of engulfing hell. That's salvation. The faith has to sail by, so to speak, and pick up lost people. And that's just like the gospel reaching those who don't know. All who are elect, to all of them, God will send his ship and pick them up and finally save them. They will persevere on board to the end and they will be saved. That's one category of sailors, but there's a second category. There are some who go with them for a little while. Along the way in this world, there are going to be some who get picked up, who continue a little while in the faith and then make shipwreck, but who are never recovered. And in the end, it's going to be revealed that they were never God's chosen to begin with. They were false pretenders and hypocrites, and they too end up on the rocks. And then there's a third category. It's really just the the first category with a variation. There are some who are truly elect, who sadly make shipwreck, but being elect and justified, later they're recovered again. 
and they're given a fresh start, and they then sail all the way to glory. Now, I don't think I have to defend these things very much because they're so so well known, or they should be, but I do want to say something about each one just for the sake of clarity. Paul is someone who, by his own testimony, was the chief of sinners, and God, having predestined him for salvation, came by and picked him up. That's the first kind. Then, for those who are false pretenders, you can see that they have this temporary existence in the kingdom of God, and you can find that in Christ's parable of the dragnet. The kingdom gathers fish of every sort, just like a net. And at the end of the age, the angels sort the men as men sort fish. The evil are separated from the righteous. So you can expect that in the visible church, and then, uh, so you can expect that in the visible church, there will be some righteous and some uh, evil or unsaved. And then there are some who truly believe, but sin, fall overboard, crash on the rocks, and then, by grace, for a time, after a time, they are recovered. And we find a person like that in 2 Corinthians 2. Most people think this is the same person who was a sexual sinner who had to be disciplined in 1 Corinthians 5. But after time, he repented, and Paul instructed the church, saying, This punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Paul even says, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So that's someone who, having been turned over to Satan, gets brought back into the church and given the privileges of membership and is able to sail on. Here are the inescapable facts of shipwreck. One is that there is always movement in the old sailing days. An anchor could only reach a short distance In other words, you would have to anchor in shallow water, in a harbor. Even today, when I assume that anchors are longer and stronger, they don't keep a ship perfectly still. And sea anchors are like drags that just slow a ship, but there is always still movement. There's movement. And to try to stay still, uh, as with a sailing ship, so with our lives. To try to stay still is to move. We move in time. Forward, but never backward. We make choices, and our choices move us in one direction or or another, and they open possibilities and shut other possibilities. To stay still is impossible. To stay still is to drift toward the rocks. Also, there are motive forces. On the high seas, winds and currents are the motive forces that drive a ship. In the human life, it's the heart. It's the influence of friends and family and society. It's desire from within and also unseen forces of evil, temptations, and other influences put in the paths of people by the devil and his angels. And there's danger. A ship adrift or a ship underway on an unsafe course will strike against land. A person who's not in a ship is in danger of drowning or in danger of sharks or of being smashed. Why are there all these motive forces propelling humanity to danger and death? Well, suppose, to continue this analogy for a moment, suppose the sea is the ruined covenant of works. It's as if in Adam's fall, and because we're all now odious sinners, 
that God dumped humanity into the lost sea with all its dangers. But God did not leave humanity that way because God, as it were, made a ship. The covenant of grace, sometimes called the faith, is the ship God sent with his own son as captain to go around and pick people up. And unless we're saved by calling out for salvation to the Lord Jesus Christ, unless we believe on him, asking for salvation from our sins and from this sea of lostness and from the ruination, that wrath and curse that we deserve under the covenant of works, destruction will be our end. Destruction to death and hell. Unless we come aboard this ship called the faith and sail, the safe course God has set will end up in disaster. Well, now that brings us to the examples of these two men in Ephesus. And they're not the only ones, but these two men are ones who threw away the instruments for sailing a safe course and they ended up on the rocks. It's the story of the two who had to be disciplined. Two who had to be disciplined. And we find them in verse 19 halfway and in verse 20. Some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. How did they make shipwreck? By rejecting this. What is this? It's faith and a good conscience. It would be like a sailor on a real sailing ship throwing the compass, the sextant, all the sails, and the anchor overboard. Now there's no hope of steering clear of danger. That's the violent act, the throwing it away. Now faith and good conscience have to do with purity in two different spheres. Faith, being belief in true doctrine, will be mixed and spoiled if the doctrine is contaminated by falsehood, and that would be impure. A good conscience, on the other hand, is contaminated and spoiled by lawless, immoral behavior. As we know, that's either failing to do what God's law requires or doing what it forbids. Remember that a good conscience is only possible by faith in Christ. First, a conscience has to be purified through forgiveness And then it's kept good by doing what Christ has commanded. That's what brings about a good conscience. A church can't be pure if its doctrine isn't pure. A church can't be pure if its members live in unrepentant sin. A pastor or a teacher cannot be pure if his doctrine, like that of Hymenaeus and Alexander, is impure or if he will not forsake his sins. Paul says the sin of Hymenaeus and Alexander was blasphemy. In what way is what they were doing blasphemy? Well, they had corrupted the gospel by false teaching. They wanted to be law teachers, and I explained that a couple weeks ago, about how there are two ways to break the law, one being legalism, teaching justification in whole or in part based on works of the law, and the other is antinomianism, or walking contrary to the moral law, saying, well, I don't have to obey. False doctrine, and that's what they had, they had false doctrine, it's the serious sin of blasphemy because it corrupts the attributes and works of God. It trades the truth for a lie and calls it God's. Here's a recent example of trading truth for a lie. 
A Methodist church invited a sodomite performer to come give the children's sermon. In God's name, that wicked pastor took God's truth, included scripture texts, and turned them into a lie. That's blasphemy. For blasphemy, the book of Leviticus prescribed stoning, Leviticus 24.16. In Romans 16, Paul further warned, Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, and avoid them. That's serious. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. But in 2 John, he declares, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. False doctrine is a serious sin because it leads to a sinful life. In other words, it introduces this impurity into a person's life and into the life of the church, just like sinfulness, whenever it's not repented of and forsaken, by and by introduces false doctrine. That's what happened with Robert Louis Stevenson when he read Herbert Spencer. He found intellectual traction for his godless lifestyle in that theory of evolution. And it could happen in a church person too. It could happen in a pastor. A person could have this one pet sin, this sin that seemed precious to him, and by and by he would justify it, make excuses for it, and formulate a creed that allowed him to keep it. And that would be a kind of self-deception. That's why Paul charged Timothy to wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Don't ever throw these away. Satan always is ready with a deceptive doctrine to corrupt God's people. Don't throw them away. Well, Hymenaeus and Alexander became corrupt and finally made shipwreck. And because they did, the apostle disciplined them. The apostles had a special commission from Christ and special authority that I think meant they could discipline on their own. And that may be a reason why Paul says, I have handed them over to Satan. Handing over to Satan is another way of talking about excommunication, which is the final step when once a sinner is confronted about his sin and refuses to hear his brother, the witnesses, and the church. I think it's clear that not all discipline is excommunication. This committing unto Satan is the most severe form of church censure. Excommunication is the exclusion of an offender temporarily or permanently from the privileges of the church. Well, after the apostles, church discipline is done by the elders on behalf of the whole. And we see the same language of being handed over to Satan in another of Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians 5, a, a section of scripture I already mentioned, where Paul, in, in his absence, instructs the elders and likely the whole church, assembled and led by the elders, saying, When you are assembled, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now just think what a serious thing it must be to be handed over to Satan. 
There's a special way in which the discipline of the church discharges a person into the hands of Satan. And I, I do mean excommunication here. I don't mean the lesser forms. It discharges a person into the hands of Satan who, with the limits that God sets, is going to have his way with that person. Protections will be removed. Privileges will be removed. God, as a rock of refuge, is going to be far from that person. The comforts of the Holy Spirit will be withdrawn. In some sense, God puts that person back out where they were before they knew Christ. He puts them back into the dangers of the sea. And that person now becomes the object of evangelism, having to be warned and exhorted that if they continue in their sin, they will suffer the final excommunication of hell. And so they're encouraged to come back to Christ, to repent and to return. Discipline maintains purity in the church and in her members. One of the effects of discipline is purging out the leaven that might infect the whole lump like yeast and dough, just a little bit of sin or false doctrine will spread. If the church does not purge out the offense and the offender, the church will be corrupted. Therefore, discipline is a protection for the rest of God's people. Discipline is necessary so everyone can maintain faith and a good conscience. But why did the Lord Jesus institute discipline for the church? It must be that it puts before the eyes of the offender and sometimes before the whole church the future and eternal consequences of unrepented sin. This is the answer if someone were to say, well, we can't discipline a man because he doesn't believe his conduct is sinful. But the discipline is there to convince him that his conduct is sinful. It's there to convince him that he's broken God's law. And as long as he remains hardened to God and unyielding, the discipline says, if you stay on this course without repenting, there's no reason to think you are Christ's. There's no reason to think you belong on this ship, no matter that you occupy a pew in church. And therefore, the discipline warns the offender away from hell, and it convinces him to return on the mercy of God in Christ to repentance. And that publicity of excommunication is also there to deter others from similar offenses. Sometimes, you know, <clears throat> discipline is not so public. It's just admonishment or rebuke, which are usually private communications from the elders. The point there is to show the offender that his sin is incompatible with his profession of faith. It's as much to say as you're not acting in a godly fashion, your conduct is lawless, and it undermines the credibility of your profession that you belong to Christ. <clears throat> well, I think it's so interesting that Paul says that Hymenaeus and Alexander have been delivered over to Satan. They received the most severe censure in order that they may learn. And Paul said something quite similar when he was talking about the man in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, he's delivered over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And that tells us that the end goal of discipline is to reclaim the offender. Uh, at best, it's not punishment, but it's a remedy 
It's bringing someone back on board. It's not punitive, but remedial. Now, you may have thought of this. The only difference between a punishment and a discipline is whether the person responds with repentance or not. The person who receives a judgment from God who never repents, to him it's a punishment. The one who repents, though, has not been punished, but has been disciplined. And whether we know it or not, we want discipline. Wouldn't you say that's a hard thing to want? It's hard to like it. I'll tell you why we want it. Hebrews 12.6 says, The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So if none of us ever get discipline, we would be illegitimate children and not sons. If Christ doesn't discipline us, it's because he doesn't love us. And we know that from Revelation 3, where Christ says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. That discipline is one of Christ's ways of keeping each of us individually and, and as a church from shipwreck. Someone might say, why not just preach the word? Why not administer the sacraments and pray? Aren't those things sufficient? Well, discipline is interrelated with pure doctrine and pure conduct. It basically keeps them pure. Take away the discipline and the doctrine will become impure. The, The conduct too will be impure. So it was God's will that Hymenaeus and Alexander were disciplined. But lastly, I think we need to ask whether There's any possibility that this discipline did them any good? Did they ever learn? That's a word there in uh, verse 20, that they may learn not to blaspheme. He, He, Paul, says that he handed them over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And I think his statement presupposes that they could have survived their shipwreck. After all, Paul Uh, in his life, was literally, physically shipwrecked three times and he survived. That's actually being plunged into the ocean uh, with a ship being broken up. But he also says something that should catch our attention, and that is that the sin of Hymenaeus and Alexander is the same as one of Paul's old sins. In verse 13 of this same chapter, Paul says, Formerly I was a blasphemer. Same sin, right? Paul, through several disciplines, including having his eyes blinded by Christ for three days, learned not to blaspheme. Paul learned faith. He learned the true gospel. He learned true holiness. He learned the faith in Christ that purifies the conscience and conduct in a way that pleases Christ. We must be holy as God is holy. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Well, we don't have any information about whether these two men ever repented, but it was possible. Like men who were once on board ship, afloat on the sea, just like they could uh, be plunged into into the deep in a shipwreck, can be retrieved and taken back on board, so could these blasphemers. Blasphemers. Just like drowning people can be rescued, so these could be rescued. And like damaged ships can be salvaged, so the faith of these men can be salvaged. 
And so discipline might have been a means to their rescue because a brief sentence under Satan's government is all it may take to drive elect offenders back to Christ and bring them back to seek reconciliation with the church. The church is the visible kingdom of God on earth. It's the house and family of God. It's where the benevolent and beneficial rule of Christ is most felt. So whatever is outside the church is the dominion of tyrannical Satan. To be outside the church is a scary thing, because outside the visible church there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. To remove an offender from the church is to put them back out with the unsaved. The world, speaking in this pejorative way that scripture uses the term world, the world has the power of hell cast over it already. The people of the world hate one another and are hated. Sin runs rampant. Sin's consequences spell misery. There's no holy joy. And the best life, the life of holiness with God as friend, is impossible out there. There's alienation, separation, there's strife and so on. Satan does not treat his, own, his people well. If a believer sins and does not repent then a taste of Satan's leadership may be what it takes to convince him that he doesn't want to be condemned along with the world. Let us be glad that there is a church, a ship, the faith, a place of spiritual comfort and security. And let us remember Christ, our captain. The choices are before us, soldier or shipwreck. Which will it be? The captain has come into the world to begin his rescue. He's snatched us up saving us from sinking, putting us as if, as it were, in him, as if putting us in an ark, safe and sound. He saved us from Satan. And he's committed to us this book of doctrine to believe, and he's purified our consciences to serve the living God. Shall we cast these things away? Let us follow him. Let us trust him. He's gone before us. He's conquered all our foes. And therefore let us soldier on, waging the good warfare, soldiering as good soldiers for the sake of his name. Let's pray.